Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I feel like every time we turn the page from chapter to chapter in Romans, it becomes my favorite chapter. And uh, I have a feeling that that will be the case all the way to chapter 16. But this is such a rich and highly practical section after 11 chapters of doctrine that Paul designates for our good, the good of each other, and the glory of God in the church. We've entitled this series that we're in in verses 3 through 8, Spiritual Gifts, the Design and Diversity of Ministry in Christ's Body. It's exactly what Paul is addressing, the design of ministry and the diversity, the different kinds of ministry that happen in Christ's body because of his gifting of believers. Let me read these verses for us just to remind you of what we're looking at and to set them in our minds. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul writes, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members, body parts, in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. And he who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. As we begin this morning, I want to invite you just for a brief moment into a little bit of my world, into what preachers go through each week to decide what they will preach, how much they will preach, and making that decision every few days, every week, every seven days or so. For some people, they follow a, a predetermined denominational calendar. There's something almost attractive to me about that. You just, this is what you're told to preach on. Someone somewhere else makes that decision, and this is the text you're given. They give you the study notes. It's, it's all pre-prescribed. Some denominations do that for their pastors. For others, they face the weekly decision on what to preach, what topic, what text. They just study and whatever... Lord encourages them to speak on whatever need they see in the congregation, whatever topic they see going on in the culture. They just decide, and that's a week-by-week -week decision. And that would seem a, a challenge to me to kind of figure out every week or even months at a time what you're going to preach on. For those of us, though, who are what we would call consecutive expositors, consecutive means in a row, expositors means to give the meaning of Scripture, so verse-by-verse -verse expo exposition, there's a whole 
other set of decisions that you have to make week in and week out, month in and month out. I try as best I can to, to plan out weeks and months at a time and, and I give that to Aaron. Aaron, as I said earlier, does a great job of, of wedding and welding the, the music and the lyrics to what we're studying and I, I so appreciate that. But sometimes I don't get everything done. It's a harder task than I, I ever thought when I was in seminary. Preaching verse by verse to the Bible is simple, but not as simple as it sounds. Because we have 66 books, and there's so much correlation and collating that happens with different texts that you could easily use any verse as a springboard into studying the whole Bible. I love uh, the subtitle of Barnhouse's, uh, Donald J. Barnhouse's uh, commentary on Romans. He says, honestly, he says, a study of the entire scriptures through the lens of Romans. Well, at least he's honest. He tries to put as much as he can together. Well, I made the decision last week to, to pull the car over and do a little uh, kind of um, confidence builder on cessationism, which led to a lot of answers for some people, and I know a lot of questions for others. And was faced with a decision, are we now going to go to 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 14, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4 to see all that God says about spiritual gifts and was tempted in the first part of the week to do that and thought we would do that. And I laid it out and that looked like another four to six weeks in that subject. And, and I just came back to Romans and thought, there will be a time for that and maybe we'll take a Sunday night and some do some things and some question answers, and that's a very important. I, I realize I didn't answer every question. Probably caused more than uh, some of you even had before that. And we'll come back to that. But I want to stay in the trajectory of what God has done in this passage and in Romans and keep some momentum going through this. Someone has described the Bible as, in terms of when you come to it to preach it as a, as a series of sausage links. It's a good illustration. And you can cut the sausage links at two or five or seven. At any different length, you could preach the whole Bible in one sermon with three sausage links, the world before the fall, the world after the fall, the world after God recreates it. You could preach the whole Bible. You could preach any book at a one sitting. You could preach different sections. Deciding the units you're going to preach is not always easy. And even after you're finished, it's not easy. I, I typically, just a little peek behind the curtain, I get up very early on Sunday mornings. I, I uh, spend some time with, the, with my notes. I massage them. I edit them. I often add to them. I feel like it's, pre, it's like preparing for a, 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 a trip. You've packed your suitcase. And you know it's like right at the last moment to say, oh, I want to take that, and I want to take that, and I want to take that, and you begin stuffing it in the suitcase. That's what a sermon feels like in some senses. This morning, it felt the same way. I was going to do seven things, seven subpoints this morning, and we're only going to do one. Um, there's an old saying that I, I've found to be so true, and any of you who teach would know this. When you, when you edit yourself, you always end up adding something. And when someone edits you, they always take something out. And that's certainly true when it comes to preaching. The longer you have to wrestle with the text, the more you think, I want to have this. I feel like it's a, you have a five passenger car and you got 11 kids and you're going to Disneyland and you can't take them all. But as you're pulling out of the car, they start hanging off the roof and duct taking, taping themselves to the back. It's just hard not to, not to do more and more. So today we're going to 
kind of go slowly through this. I want to give you a little bit of insight as to what we're doing and why we're doing it. Very important real estate here in Romans. Talking about spiritual gifts, but the bigger issue is how has God designed Christians to minister to Christians, the body of Christ to care for itself. I know there are still lingering questions about spiritual gifts, and we will come to those in the future. And we'll answer some more even today, but I want to get some momentum in this passage itself. We've begun looking at three ingredients. This is our outline. Three ingredients for faithful ministry in the body of Christ. The first we looked at in verse 3, a proper evaluation of self in the body of Christ. Number one, a proper evaluation of self in the body of Christ. Paul says in verse 3, we've studied this several weeks now, let me just summarize it, that before you look at ministering to other people, you cannot have the wrong perspective about yourself. And he identifies that by saying you cannot think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And then he says you ought to have sound judgment, literally sober-minded judgment, not drunk judgment. In other words, you're not intoxicated with the pride of knowing who you are and how you're gifted. It starts with humility, crushing of pride, and the pursuit of humility is the basis of foundation on which we minister to one another in the body. Secondly, the second ingredient we looked at in verses 4 and 5, it's a functional understanding of ministry in the body of Christ. A functional, how does it work? A functional understanding of ministry in the body of Christ. By functional, we mean that you have a part to play. Verse 4 says, we have many members or body parts, hands, feet, nose, eyes, mouth, many body parts, but one body, all the members do not have the same function. We all have been uniquely made, gifted, identified by God as special envoys of his grace to minister to others in the body for his glory and for their good. Different functions. And now we come to what we do. So number three, this is where we'll look today, and I have seven subpoints under this because there are seven gifts listed here. And we'll only get to the first one today. A unique application of gifts in the body of Christ. A unique, unique to you, application, your own ministry, of gifts in the body of Christ. Look at verse 6. He says, since we have gifts. Stop and marinate in that. Since we have gifts, everyone has gifts. Everyone has been gifted. We'll come back to that in a moment. Since we have gifts, they're different. They differ according to the grace given to us. God has given to each different gifts according to his sovereign purposes, according to his wisdom, according to his love for his bride, the church, according to each individual body of Christ. He's given gifts in you, to you, for you to use for specialized ministry purposes. And they're different. He begins by saying we have gifts that differ. That means there's a place for everyone and everyone has a place. Each are different, but none are more or less important. Now, in order to understand this, I want, to, I want you to do something with me. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The other place where these gifts are listed. Now, this is a section as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul does something different in 1 Corinthians 12, which is written four years earlier than Romans. 
Here he's correcting their abuses of spiritual gifts. So he actually talks about a whole different set of gifts and different applications of them in 13 and 14 than he does in Romans 12. So in Romans 12, he's using his discussion of gifts to encourage them to be faithful. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, he's using that section of Scripture to correct their abuses. And without getting into the charismatic, continuationist, or cessationist debate, I just want to read this to you. And I want you to listen with special ears, tuned ears, to the purpose that he's addressing. He deals with the, the, uh, the charismatic issue. He deals with the, the pride issue. I understand it. Just listen for the diversity of application. Verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. We'll come back to this in a moment, but varieties. A lot of different gifts. I don't think these are comprehensive in the listing here. A lot of different kinds. There are different people. You are all uniquely different. But to each one, everyone, not just some, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Every one of you is gifted by God for the common good of the health of his church. And if you're a part of this church, let me encourage you. There is good news. You are needed, welcome, and you are most necessary to the health of each person who sits around you, each person in our body, by executing your spiritual giftedness. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effects of miracles, the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Don't miss the fact that everyone is gifted. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are still one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink with one spirit. Then we've talked about this. I love this. For the body is not one part or member, but many. If the foot says, it's almost humorous. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has now placed the members, each one of them, each one of them in the body just as he desired. Let me stop right there. I am convinced that every member of Mission Road Bible Church is a specialized, unique tool. You are a Swiss army knife with things on your knife that are only on yours specially designed by you, to be used only by you in this body, as Paul says, for the common good, just as God desired. But if all were one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. 
The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again to the, feet, the, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker, less showy, internal, he's talking about internal organs here, are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, literally less noticeable, your toes, your pancreas and liver, your intestines, on these we bestow, bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable, noticeable members become more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But as God has composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And then he says, if one part suffers, every part suffers. Any of us would look at our bodies. I don't think anyone looks at our own body and says, well, that's more valuable than this. I can do without that. I'll keep this. If any part of your body were sick or hurt, you would give attention to it because it's all necessary. And we want all of those parts to be functioning. Now, let's back up from that. Spiritual gifts fall into three main categories. We looked at one of them last week. We'll look at the next two in the coming weeks. Three main categories. Sign gifts, which were uh, spoken of in Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, in Hebrews 12, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Sign gifts, which were to identify the apostles and the first generation speakers and uh, preachers of the gospel to say this is uniquely pointing to the truth of the gospel. It was before the New Testament was written, so we studied this last week. So there was a need for a supernatural manifestation that would come with this new revelation that the gospel is true and Jesus is the Messiah. I think there's biblical compelling evidence that they faded from use during the time of the life of the apostles. And you can go back and listen to last week if you want to get that. There are two other categories of gifts. There are sign gifts, speaking gifts, and serving gifts. That's three. Sign gifts, speaking gifts, serving gifts. Peter talks about two of those categories. You'll remember in 1 Peter chapter 4, which he said, in which he says... As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And those these two, two categories. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the very utterances of God. Next category. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that all things may be, in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love the fact that even there, Peter says, each one has received gifting. You may have a speaking gift or you have a serving gift. All of the gifts outside of the sign gifts fall into those two broad stroke categories. And each person has gifting. Spiritual gifts are not for the elite, they're not for the talented, they're not for the popular, they're not for the outgoing or the gregarious, only the wealthy, only the handsome, the pretty, the athletic, the smart, the musically inclined. Spiritual gifts are for everyone, and each person has been gifted. 
I love how my mentor, John MacArthur, described this many years ago. Maybe you've heard this illustration. It's very helpful. He said, when God gifted us, it wasn't as if there were only a certain uh, number of gifts that he would pick from and give, give us from these dozen or so. The dozen or so, or, or 14 or so, that are listed between the, the different um, passages, 1 Corinthians 4, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, are like a palette of colors. And from that palette, he ta- dips a little of this and a little of that and a little of this and, and creates a special color and paints you. You are uniquely gifted and blessed by God to be you and minister to the body in a way that only you can. Each one has been gifted, as Paul said, for the common good. As Peter said, for the manifold grace of God ministering to one another. If you are a believer, you have gifts from God in unique ways that enable you to serve the church. Listen, that no one else can like you except you. Now, we're going to dive into this list in the next week or so, but I want to first ask some questions that a lot of people have asked. I hear these all the time. I'm sure you've asked them. I've asked them. So let's, let's address them before we dive into the list. First of all, are, there, are these gifts natural abilities that are used by God, or does God supernaturally change a person when they become a Christian and they're gifted in a way that they weren't beforehand? You understand what, what the question is? Do you have certain natural gifts and you get saved and God uses those gifts for spiritual application or are you one way before you're saved, you get converted to the gospel of Christ and he changes your personality, he changes your skill set, he changes your interest, he changes your focus and now you're completely different in the way that you serve. Which is it? And my answer is letter C, all the above, both of the above. And we see that in the scriptures. Paul, for example, was Paul a gifted leader before he was converted? Absolutely. Studying under Gamaliel, uh, a member of the Sanhedrin, he was one that people uh, looked to. We see that when they even laid the coats at his, his feet, it was someone they respected. He was a gifted leader, I think, and a gifted communicator before he was ever converted. And when he became con- converted, when he came to the gospel, God used all those gifting natural abilities for his glory I also know people that have been shy and and really not engaging, not very outgoing, who are converted. God turns a switch, flips a switch in their personality, and they become completely different, and they're gifted on the spot. I don't think we need to debate that. God does both. I was kind of an outgoing, take charge knucklehead before I was converted, and then when I got saved, those became sanctified issues of gifting, still becoming sanctified gifts of, uh, issues in my gifting that are used for Christ's glory. So are they natural abilities or supernatural gifts? Both. Second question. Are these, we've already said this, are these comprehensive lists in these four passages? Categorically, yes. There are three categories. Sign gifts, Speaking gifts, serving gifts. But I don't think these are comprehensive in specifics. There are speaking gifts, serving gifts, but those take on very different shapes and execution. If I were preaching today, uh, this passage, 
uh, and Aaron preached it next week, or Adam, or Myrel, or Bob preached it the following weeks, it would might sound a little different. Our gifting is different. Same gifts, but application, manifestation, a little different. We're going to get into what that means, especially with serving. Is your house your spiritual gift? No, but can you use your house with your spiritual gift? Yes, but that's next week. A third question. How many gifts can a person have? <laughs> Do they just have one gift? There's nothing in the texts that indicate that any person just has one gift. In fact, I like MacArthur's illustration. You're probably a combination of a lot of gifting. You have different dimensions and expressions of gifts that flow differently. And there's no reason to think you only have one gift. And remember, you say, what is this gift? It's something that God, we'll get in this next week, has given you in who you are and what you have and how you operate and how you think in your mental capacities. It's what God has done in you that he can use to build up the body of Christ and the believers around you. That's how he's gifted you. Now, as we look at this list here, there's something that you should immediately notice and there, that there's a, there's a rhythm. There's a rhythm to, to the list. It, it's, not, uh, it's not like the other three lists in Ephesians, Romans, and 1 Peter. And the rhythm is there's the gift is given and then there's an immediate exhortation to employ the gift. Listen to this rhythm. Look at the end of verse 6. We're back in Romans chapter 12 now. If prophecy, listen... According to the proportion of your faith. Prophesy according to the proportion of your faith. If service, here it is, in serving. Teaches, here it is, teaching. Exhorts, exhortation. Gives, liberality. See what he's doing? There's a, list, there's, a, there's a gift given, and then there's the immediate exhortation to employ the gift. This is unique. Paul doesn't do this anywhere else in the New Testament. And the reason is this passage is all about him encouraging. If you're gifted, then use your gifts. That's the key point here. Find your giftedness and use it. It doesn't do any good to have a knowledge of your spiritual gift and to do little with it. How many of you are old enough to have taken those spiritual gift inventories? Do anybody remember those? Boy, I took those. I remember taking, taking them a few weeks apart with completely different results. It was, it was interesting. Well, I guess I, my gifting changed. Those may be helpful in giving you ideas, but I think the best way, we're going to look at this specifically next week, but the best way to know how you're gifted is try them all. Try serving. Try teaching. Try giving. Try ministering. Try helping. Try. Just say, well, here are categories that, that the Lord says I could I can minister by speaking truth or by serving and making people's life better because they know me. Try them. See where you're gifted. Now, there are seven that Paul isolates here in Romans 12, seven of the gifts, and followed by a responsibility to minister these gifts. He's building up these Italians and the Roman church to minister together and to each other. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, he's actually talking about their abuses of the spiritual gifts. It's a corrective. This is an admonition and an encouragement where 1 Corinthians 12 is a corrective. That's why they feel and sound substantially different. 
It's also why I want to take this opportunity to make this an encouraging time. We'll do the polemical uh, corrective side at another time. So we're only going to look at the first one today, prophesying. Prophesying. I'd hoped we could get to the first two, but after first service, I know we're only going to get to this one, prophesying. Let me ask you first, what do you think of when you hear the word prophet or prophecy? Usually, when we hear the term prophecy, prophecy conference, the prophecies in the Bible, we almost intuitively think of foretelling, telling of the future, right? Something that's coming that's predicted and predicting the future. Well, that's true of some prophecies in the Bible. But did you know that the majority, listen, this is important, the majority of the prophetic literature we have, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, Hosea, Micah, Obadiah, the majority of all of those prophets have very little to do with telling the future. Some do, but very little. The majority of the prophets were God speaking through men to correct and to speak to ethical issues, religious issues, moral issues, spiritual issues. That's important because the readers of this book, these Italians who would read the book of Romans, when they heard the term prophecy, prophesy, or prophet, had a whole uh, brain full of history and understanding with that term. It just didn't invent itself out of nowhere. When they heard prophecy, prophet, prophesy, they thought Old Testament prophets. Now, most of these prophets were forth-telling more than foretelling. They were, they were preachers. I love the prophets. Read the prophets. If you, if you want to read the prophets, you're getting sermons. They're preaching to you about how your heart can be changed and your actions can come in line with Scripture. But we need to look at here. There, he says, those who prophesy, prophecy. Now, as we look at this gift, we need to keep in mind that there is foretelling and forthtelling. These readers had a whole mental uh, uh, wardrobe of understanding about the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament. And I just need to stop right here and say, you may or may not be aware that in our generation and in the coming, excuse me, in the last, I don't know, decade, 15 years or so, there has been a major debate Pretty significant rift theologically about this gift of prophecy in evangelicalism. Specifically, what is this gift of prophecy? Who has it? Who can have it? Is it operative today? Is it a sign gift? Or is it practical for those to have, pursue, and employ in the church today? Now, when you study the book of Acts and you study the epistles, it becomes undeniably clear that... There is only one kind of prophetic gifting. Only one kind of prophetic gifting. The New Testament readers would obviously associate that gift of prophecy with what they understood from the Old Testament. And Old Testament prophets and Old Testament prophecy, if it was true prophecy, was very simply error-free. 
And it was error-free revelation from God. It was infallible, which means they had no errors. And it was authoritative. It was binding on those who heard it. And it was almost always preceded by the phrase, what? Thus says the Lord. That's how a prophet spoke. This specific gift was needed in that first generation, thus says the Lord about Jesus and about the gospel because this was the mystery that was revealed in the New Testament times. This was the the gospel that had been hidden from ages past, as Ephesians tells us. Once the New Testament was written about those same issues about which they were prophesying, there was no need for prophecy. Because to say, thus says the Lord, after the Bible was written, was merely to say, thus says the Bible. Right? Does that make sense? So is there a modern day application of this prophecy? Paul says, you know, if you're going to prophesy, do it in a certain manner. If prophecy, if that's your gift. So what, is there a gift of prophecy today? I say not exactly like it, like it was in the, in the first century, but there's an application of it. And I think you'll understand it after we kind of wade through this a bit. I agree with John MacArthur who said this, prophecy has the literal meaning of speaking forth with no connotation of prediction or other supernatural or mystical significance. The gift of prophecy is simply the gift of preaching or of proclaiming the word of God. God used many Old New Testament prophets to foretell future events, but it was never an indispensable part of prophetic ministry. Paul gives perhaps the best definite definition of the prophetic gift in 1 Corinthians when he says, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation, 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Peter's admonition also applies to that gift We just read this. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. He further says, the gift of prophecy then, listen, is the gift of being God's public spokesperson primarily to God's own people to instruct, admonish, warn, rebuke, correct, challenge, comfort, and encourage. How can we do that today? By only saying, thus says the Lord. Where has God spoken where we can say that? In his word. So the prophecy in the first generation was speaking new uh, revelation about the mysteries of the gospel. Understanding that Jesus was the Messiah. Once the New Testament was canonized and it was closed. Now the way that we would speak or give a prophetic utterance is to say what God has already said. So I'm okay if if you want to apply the idea of prophecy to preaching. However, there is a movement afoot in evangelicalism that says prophecy is just telling people impressions that the Lord has put on your mind that may or may not be true. In other words, 
There are prolific theologians who've written extensively about this. They believe that there can be fallible, errant-prone prophecy in the church today. There's very specific directions given to prophets who weren't speaking the truth in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, they were, they were called out and to be taken outside the camp and stoned to death. So what is this here? It's speaking revelation of God that is contained in the Scripture. You say, well, is that, is that a recent idea? John Calvin said... I prefer to follow those who extend this word, prophecy, wider even to the particular gift of revelation by which anyone skillfully and wisely uh, might perform the office of an interpreter in explaining the will of God. Hence, prophecy at this day in the Christian church is hardly anything else than the right understanding of the Scripture and the particular faculty of explaining it. Pretty simple. Some believe that the gift of prophecy amounts to receiving impressions from the Lord, communicating those impressions to the church. And here's what's important to understand. If we apply the Old Testament standard of those prophecies and they're not true, we have a problem. If you have the idea, which many do, of the possibility of giving prophecies to the church that are fallible, you open a warehouse of Pandora's boxes. The gift, listen, of prophecy in the New Testament was always credible. In fact, there's nothing that regulates or informs us how to discern or figure out infallible or errant prone prophecies. Now, I want to talk about this for just a minute because I have many friends who hold to this. I know theologians. You have read theologians who hold to this. And in looking at the material on this, there, there's so much written on this. I, I, I would just point you to a lot of things that you could read. But Nathan Boosnitz, who's a theological doctor and a, a, a theologian in his own right at the Master Seminary, and I was his junior high pastor, so it's a little humbling when you, and encouraging when you see your students grow up and become your teachers. He has this excellent summary. He summarizes five concerns with the idea of the possibility of fallible, errant-prone prophecy. Someone having an impression that they speak to the church. Uh, this is what the, I think the Lord is telling us, and it could be wrong. This is what he says about that. Five quick concerns. First of all, by creating the category of modern prophecy that can include erroneous messages... This view makes it unnecessarily difficult for the church today to identify and refute false prophets. It further neuters and ignores the strict requirements on true prophecy found in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. Secondly, he says, by defining prophecy in terms of impressions and subjective guidance, this view provides no objective or authoritative means by which a person can know for sure if a feeling is from God or some other source. It also provides no objective or authoritative means by which the church leaders, by which church leaders can evaluate for sure whether a prophet's message is legitimate. Thirdly, he says, by teaching that God still gives prophetic revelation today, this view encourages believers to look for messages from God 
outside of the Bible. While continuationists insist on a closed canon, and, and rightly so, um, this view of prophecy in practice calls into question the sufficiency of Scripture at the most practical levels of daily living. Fourth, by using terms like prophecy and revelation and, quote, a word from the Lord, this view has the potential to manipulate people by binding their conscience to a fallible message or compelling them to make unwise decisions. Though proponents insist that congregational prophecy is not authoritative, at least at the corporate level, their understanding of prophecy is highly vulnerable to being abused within the local congregation. And fifthly, and then I'll comment on these, by allowing for error in prophecy, the view permits people to say, thus says the Lord, when in fact their messages are fallible and erroneous. Would God ever say anything fallible or with error? In effect, it allows people to attribute to God, the God of truth, messages that are errant, which is a very dangerous thing to do. Furthermore, by redefining fallible messages as prophecy, it demeans and cheapens the true gift of infallible prophecy as it operated in the Old and New Testaments, end quote. Now, what does this typically look like? It typically looks like a church service or a church gathering, and there's someone is has a microphone, and they would get up and say, I believe the Lord has this word for the church, and they would say something. It could be a dream they had. It sometimes could be a verse they, they read. It sometimes could be a vision they had. That scares me. How do I know that's from the Lord? Now, if someone wanted to say to the church, boy, I was reading you know, Psalm 51 the other day, and I want to encourage you that the Lord taught me how sweet it is to be forgiven, and I want to pray if any of you need to enjoy that, that sweet gift of forgiveness, I'm praying for you today. That, that's not prophecy, that's encouragement. But people want to call that prophesying. Further, as Buznitz points out, what if they say, I believe the Lord has great things for us and uh, um, uh, he's going to abund, uh, uh, let's say in our context, he's going to pay off our debt by next week for our church. And a week goes by and nothing comes in the mail. We wait for a few days to see if the mail catches up and nothing. And we wait three weeks, four weeks, and the debt's not paid off and they're wrong. And they said, thus says the Lord. Now you've got a problem. think it's unwise to publicly assume that you have a word from God unless it has book, chapter, and verse attached to it. I'm actually okay if someone says, boy, I have a strong impression that we ought to do something. That's great. It's an impression. That can be fallible. But to say that that's a prophecy, that's Makes me really nervous. So if you're going to prophesy in the New Testament sense, or if you're going to do what we've said, preach God's word in, in a, um, an application sense, since that is his prophecy, look at the next phrase. You do so according to the proportion of, your text may say, of his faith. It's a definite article there, which in the Greek means it should be translated the faith, the faith, which is the gospel itself. We teach and prophesy only in accordance with the truth of the gospel. We're not prophesying about whether or not you should marry someone or take a job or buy a car. 
Same thing Paul said in verse 3, God has, as God has allotted to each one a measure of faith because we believe the gospel, that's why we serve, that's why we preach, that's why we see these sign gifts operating in that first generation. In other words, gifting is a reflex to our faith in the gospel. That's important. Our gifts, the utilization of our gifts, are a reflex of our understanding, our love, our deep longing and appreciation of gospel truth. Because of that, we operate our gifts. So I don't mean to belabor the point on this prophecy thing, but you have probably or you will encounter those who believe that prophecy should be defined as gaining an impression from the Lord and telling people in the church. And you will read people, some names, big names that you know, who would believe that that can possibly be fallible. Well, I think God's word is clear. God has spoken and get this. The inventor of language, when he spoke in the word of the living God in the Bible, did not have a speech impediment. He invented language. He told us everything he wants us to know and no more. Deuteronomy says the secret things are his. We don't even get to hear those. But he's given us what we need, and he's given us what we need to know now, and he's given us everything that would apply to any decision we can make that's written right here. Sure, he provides counsel, but that's not prophecy. Sure, he provides insight and impressions for people, but that's not prophecy. Prophets were always right because they spoke for God, and God doesn't make erroneous prophecies. Now, that's the debatable one. Can I use this strange word? The funnest one? The most exciting one? The one that I think you are going to be so energized to engage and, and express and know how you can be a part of is number two, which we will get to next week. Serving. Serving. 